Good morning or good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I've been asked to do a presentation on a very interesting day, which is effectively election night um, in the United States. So yesterday's panel that I participated in, that seemed to have been like some of the central focus. So I want to cover some elements as far as like basically how we got to where we're at and basically kind of like where we're going, uh, particularly like post the election as far as markets and commodities are concerned. But I think that prior to us discussing about that, it's essential for us to understand like why things are the way that they are. Um, there's obviously some soft commodity and hard commodity elements to some of the things that I observed. And I think that with this year and the extent of like uncertainty that has happened in this year that it's just imperative that we get, get a sound understanding of what is ultimately happening. And I, I feel like one of the main reasons on why I'm able to discuss with you about this is like, I feel like this was one of the greatest opportunities that has existed for investors overall um, into various different asset classes throughout this year, right? We've seen oil prices go down into negative prices for the first time ever. And then now we see it trading effectively at what, $36 a barrel, um, all while there's this resurgence of renewable energy um, with gold hovering at all time highs. So I just like to remind the audience if they weren't here last year was I was actually in person doing the exact same presentation that I'm doing for you today. And I was actually discussing about why one should be buying precious metals. Um, in fact, I'm from Vietnam, but basically when I had went to Singapore, the purpose was to buy physical gold and silver in Singapore and find a storage container to put that in and to share to the audience about that investment. Um, and that was primarily one of the major focuses that I had in that conversation, besides just sharing, again, certain perspectives. So I, I find that in the time that Daniel provides me, hopefully I'm able to provide for the audience some value of to where we should be going as far as thinking about asset classes and sectors with you know, some perspective about global macro uh, developments. And I think that most people right now, besides just listening to me, are also wondering what's happening in the news as it relates to this election. So hence why I also am also following it as well. And there seems to be a sense of uncertainty and then hopefully what I'll do at the end of this is kind of discuss about what my playbook is um, going into that. But prior to that, let's, let's take a look at where we're going to be or how we ultimately got here. So one of the key things that have hap has happened, particularly in 2020, is that we now see this binary divide, or you could call it um, a Hegelian dialectic divide of society, the economy, uh, politics. And 
in simple terms, you simply could say that this division is about leftist views and right-wing views that has basically come together in this clash that is going to manifest itself um, as we get our election results. And this is a theme that is happening the world over. And perhaps you might have heard of this already, but I also like to later on share to you a few more perspectives. And in addition to discussing to you about this left-right narrative that is happening, to give you some quick background as it relates to commodities and how that has actually accentuated this right-left divide. So let's, let's take a look at some observations that I made. So I have, for the last several years, been doing a deep examination into Asia. And from what I understand is that a lot of the growth of Asia has been predicated by geographical features. What I'm going to share to you is even more profound um, besides just discussing about the basic geographical features. From, from what I understood a few years ago, the agricultural roots of the region was primarily predicated by fertile lands from the Tibetan plateau to provide rivers and creeks throughout places like China and the Mekong Delta. But what you will also observe is that these countries ultimately took more of a left-leaning perspective, or perhaps I'll use different words and dialectics to describe left-leaning. Perhaps what we've also seen is a lot of centralization that has happened. And one might be baffled on why this is the case. Confucian said something along the lines of, if the wind blows, the crops will yield to the direction of the wind. And this Confucian philosophy is one of the rationales on why these states have been structured in the manner that they are. To, to, to imply that these beliefs and these views are based on some cultural foundation. But what I have done over some extensive study is examine how geographical features ultimately structure the economy and how technology works towards bolstering the centralization of the state. So there's a, definitely there's a soft commodity element to this, and we'll talk about hard commodities after. But what is it that I noticed? I noticed that besides the fact that this region is predicated on the Tibetan plateau, this region was able to utilize technology to grow agriculture much more effective than let's say parts of Western Europe or even the New World. Now, when countries are able to grow crops to such success based on fertile land and based on advanced technology to generate the crop yield that they generated, it then becomes easier 
to bureaucratize that state. Hence, when you think about places like China or throughout a lot of Asia, you will see that prior to, let's say, a dictatorship, there was a monarch. Effectively, it's centralized. And the effectiveness of the centralization had to do with the geographical features, such as the agricultural land that allowed whomever that ruling body is to control and manage. At the end of the day, quite simply, it's the ability to manage the cash flow of the populace and tax that cash flow. Now, how did I derive that conclusion? Well, I simply plotted countries that were, let's say, more democratic versus countries that were much more authoritarian. And you will see that there is a calorie or caloric variability of countries that had less success as, as far as agriculture is concerned versus countries that had a lot of success as far as calories were concerned because of the effectiveness and the use of technology to ensure that there were rations of food for the populace, but more importantly, to ensure that the populace was generating enough revenue for the state. So at the end of the day, I indicate here that the path of many of these countries were predetermined. Caloric variability led to the perspective of small governments and low caloric variability led to big governments. So what happens when you have minimal variability based on your success of agriculture? Well, what you ultimately created was a populace that you could tax and a populace that could be responsible through the taxation to provide the state the ability to go into debt for the purposes of, let's say, armed forces and infrastructure to ensure even less variability as far as social conditions were are concerned. More importantly is that the success of agriculture, as many people are aware, requires a lot of land terraforming. Agriculture, or at least highly productive agriculture as we see um, this day and age, is not natural at all. It requires a lot of tilling, it requires a lot of chemicals, um, and that is effectively terraforming the land and actually causing a lot of the desertification that you're seeing the world over. So just take for a moment to think about what I'm saying and how not only does it apply to the region, but it actually applies the world over. So uh, simply put is that even the British monarch was unable to effectively tax their citizens because the success of Europe's agriculture was inferior to that of Asia. So again, this has massive uh, ramifications to explain why we are where we're at and why people are thinking and behaving the way that they are. Um, I would cite more about the United States uh, right after. And here you go. There 
for places in which agriculture was less successful in, you see that it would be hard to tax those people. They were effectively nomads because there wasn't any farms and agriculture for them to farm to generate the cash flows for the state to basically tax. So I, I put here that, you know, a right perspective or a right paradigm is the Wild West and its freedom. The whole idea that, let's take America, for example, the whole idea that early settlements in America started eastward and shifted westward. And the, the words, the lexicon was about like the Wild West and gunfights and no laws, which has now become almost a bedrock of this dialectic, this ideological battle that is happening the world over between left and right. Right effectively is representing low taxation, low representation, because if I was a cowboy heading westward, how could you tax me? And what kind of representation would I need due to the lawlessness and the chaos? There was no food security, which is a very popular word that's used by the United Nations. Everything is about ensuring appropriate rations and security. And just going back to that left slide here is that security isn't always guaranteed. You can definitely take a look at places like Asia in which once the state has aggregated and effectively made state-owned enterprises out of agriculture, how inefficient it was that ultimately created a lot of the key famines that happened in Eastern Europe and in Asia. So be cognizant of that. The, the key lesson about Asia is actually the, the quote-unquote privatization of farming, because irrespective of privatization to, let's say, one or two hectares per farmer, that one or two hectares was still easy taxable income because it's much more visible to see how a farmer is making money than it is watching how an Uber driver or how a Bitcoin investor is actually making money. So when I refer to Bitcoin and Uber, I was referring to technology. And technology has been the key thread throughout basically the course of our economy and human history, society, and why certain countries are taking the economic structure that they are. So again, what I was saying to you earlier was that Asia was very successful with agriculture using the technologies at that time, okay? Hence why I'm saying that technocrats enable centralization. It is now the successful use of technology that is going to help many states to centralize manufacturing. Look at what China is trying to achieve with a China 2025 objective. It is effectively the centralization of state-owned enterprises, which primarily are focused on manufacturing. Now, when we go to the service sector, it becomes much more elaborate. So this is where terms like big tech start to have significance. It's about information and the usage of information, who controls the information, what is it you see? What is it you're seeing on the background as far as your TV is concerned, how are pools being distorted? All of technology has done 
through history has actually improved the process of centralization. Hence, a perspective of people that are known to be conservative is holding on to the pillars of the past. It's not about, quote unquote, the progression. And one element that is ensuring that progression is advanced technology for the purposes of centralization. People could say something like Big Brother, and that could be a trigger word for many people as well. So please keep that in mind. What, what is happening based on the usage of technology? Technology is allowing and propagating an age of inversion. Left is becoming more prevalent because the right is shifting more left. We, for the last presidential term, really experienced no new wars for the first time in multiple decades. But it sounds like the current person that is the president sounds like a warmonger, according to the narrative, because we now live in this age of inversion. Free markets are frowned upon. I talk to people about market dynamics. They feel highly uncomfortable about that. And all of this inversion of, let's say, open markets, right-wing perspectives are being inverted through the use of technology and how it facilitates the centralization of basically our economies, our societies. So heck, if you were a small to medium business enterprise owner and the government has now effectively locked you down, you can't even go out and really be an entrepreneur unless you are deemed essential to do so or unless the state dictates that you're allowed to even be open. So all of these pers perspectives about entrepreneurship, small to medium enterprises, um, you know, being able to participate in markets, it's actually now becoming much more big brother oriented, even if you wanted to hold a particular view. Hence, the age of inversion is now in full effect. And I think that has effectively started using COVID as the catalyst to accelerate it. So where are we going uh, based on everything that's happened? So quickly to recap, right? We, we used um, our, our geographical features to basically predicate the difference between individuals having to go out and take risk, such as like the Wild West, or people that were keen on security and safety, which is also a very interesting thing um, based on what you hear in the news right now. It's about protecting people. It's, it's the feature of this whole mask conversation, right? So you've had things like that. Then you had technology shift its focus out of agriculture. It's still in agriculture, hence the desertification of the land, hence how uh, basically a lot of this land is actually emitting a lot of CO2, which is playing a factor as well. You see the usage and heavy usage of, of technology and manufacturing, hence why people are talking about like AI, hence why China is so keen on playing a big role in manufacturing. And now you start to see it being implemented in like the service sector, which is how I look at basically GDP. So if you have the right inverting and then you have the left where it is, 
ultimately this will lead towards centralization. And what does that mean? That means that the state is getting bigger. It's a balance sheet via debt is getting bigger and taxation um, without representation is getting bigger because it needs to finance itself. And that's all part of this centralization that is happening until it no longer can sustain itself and it will implode in itself. So when I study people like Ray Dalio, he completely misses the point on the fact that most countries don't really last that long. In fact, like the average currency might last like 70 or 80 years. And when you see a situation like we've seen right now, you see a lot of currencies that are at risk. People tend to focus on the US dollar to say that's at risk. You got to understand that that's the biggest and the most vital currency. It's the world reserve currency. So irrespective of your perspective, if, long story short, if you're bearish on the US dollar, that means that you're bearish on every single other currency that's inferior to it relative to credit rating. And, and I think that that's where people miss the point. They, they, they think somehow magically it's like, oh, the US dollar is at big risk, whereas some other country that is vastly centralized already is going to somehow outlive the world reserve currency. Historically, that doesn't happen. That's why the British pound is still around today, even though it is no longer the world reserve currency. World reserve currencies of the past and present tend to have sustainability. It doesn't imply that it's going to go through the roof. It does imply that it will stick around, whereas other currencies will flat out cease to exist. Hence, that's what I call the omega point. When people talk about the end, which leads to a new beginning, that's called an omega point. When China goes through a dynasty to an authoritarian dictatorship, that was a transition of an omega point. Countries go through these processes, these cycles, many times over. So it's not, it doesn't imply that it is the end of the world and you're gonna all die. That doesn't, that's not what it means. It means that states collapse, the, the populace is still around, and then it takes a new shape. And it seems like this is where we're headed towards some, for many countries, some probably more further along the line than others. But do not confuse that as an as a indictment on something like the United States, when if you do want to look at it that, from that perspective, there are much more other currencies at risk. In, in the previous panel, I had discussed about uh, with all these gentlemen, because they were like all talking about the US dollar, I said to them, there's probably about over the next 24 months, there's going to be $21 trillion worth of maturities that are going to happen on a sovereign level and a corporate debt level. Um, and that, by the way, might not be service. And that should expose what is happening and create a domino effect. So you heard a lot of like doom and gloom, but believe it or not, there's a lot of positive elements, particularly from an investor's perspective. We need to find pockets of light. I heard that term and I found that to be such a fascinating um, thought. And I think that, I think what, what even like terrorism has demonstrated is that things won't necessarily be uh, predicated by countries and states anymore. It's gonna be about like who shares common ideas and beliefs. 
you, you can see that with this, even this presidential um, election, you see that, let's say the Midwest is, is very much um, of one ideological bent. And then you see like the coast states of one ideological bent. You see, um, let's say Western hemisphere as one ideological bent. And then you see the old world having a particular view as well. You see this segmentation between rural and urban areas as well. So I think that when we look at this new society, this new culture, um, these new environments and these, these new um, opportunities, we need to I think about them as far as like pockets as opposed to a particular country or a particular location. And that's definitely playing out as we speak because at the end of the day, irrespective of whichever ideological bent that you have, you are seeing centralization. So, so the primary question here is about where are the opportunities and, and what kind of like shape could you see? Um, in the previous panel I had identified in the, in the instance of, let's say a Biden win, you could see weaker US dollar, you could see um, you, you saw it actually last on the last close. You saw basically renewable energy stocks kind of like led the way. So that's one of his, his narratives. And then you also could see big tech continuing to have its presence because there won't be the pressure of some kind of like information censorship narrative um, with someone that is much more interested in maintaining like big tech relationships and like global multinational relationships. So basically all the work that the Trump administration has made kind of like reverts or inverts back to like that old world. So if I'm thinking about companies like the New York Times, Goldman Sachs, I'm thinking about how balance sheets are gonna be inflated. I'm thinking about how big tech is gonna continue to dominate. I'm gonna think about how trade deals are gonna allow for a weaker US dollar, but then all other currencies are equally gonna be uh, just as weak for the purposes of basically increasing the forex reserves of so many of, of these countries that solely rely on US dollar to finance their regime vis-a-vis -vis China. So that's how I see the world in like a, a Biden perspective or like let's say a left-leaning perspective. And then obviously if you see a Trump win, the opportunities within the oil and gas space will continue. In fact, again, I should note that last night or basically the close of, of the, the trading session, you saw oil up, but renewables also up. And then you also saw the market up. And I think there's a few takeaways here. If, if from a investor's perspective, you see that the market may be up because the market likes stability. And that could imply that there's a lot of the incumbency remaining the same. Hence why you're so buoyant about that. But being an astute investor, I'd be thinking about, wow, like where's, where's all these um, alternative sources of energy that I could focus on? And that's why you see companies like renewables take charge. Solar battery companies that people are talking about here. Um, industrial metals could be... Uh, very beneficial towards what is happening. So that close as of today 
is very unique and anomalous based on the fact that the market's up, which is probably like pro-stability, pro-incumbents. But then you see the, the sectors that took the leadership, which are very much like pro-Biden's um, narrative. So going back to precious metals, which a lot of people are also interested in, I was discussing about in the last panel is that I've, I've come to, so I own silver at like $12 an ounce. I've held it for, let's say a good, like let's say 12 to 18 months. Um, I, I think that I wanna see how this year ends for the US dollar. I want to see, or I dread to see that a lot of defaults will happen which should actually have some kind of like ripple effect, systemic risk that could happen irrespective of whomever wins this election. If that does happen, then you will see a stronger dollar. And if you see a stronger dollar, that should suppress commodity prices. I don't know at what stage one would want to be overzealous on commodities. I find that the fact that gold just made an all-time high recently relative to that of, let's say, the NASDAQ that made it way earlier. Like, literally, I was buying NASDAQ at the, on, what is it, uh, March 24th, calling a bottom on the market, and then basically within a few months' time, being able to realize the bottom all the way to an all-time high, that is relative outperformance. And it almost is an indictment on some of these commodities to show where they potentially lie on, on what I coin as the risk curve. So when I think about the risk curve, I think about asset classes that um, are of higher quality that lead the markets. And I think about asset classes that potentially are lower quality that lag the market. And I think that that is the big challenge for investors to identify, like, based on the fact that all demand has been shut off and then reactivated at the discretion of the state, which ones are going to be reactivated? And how does that cost benefits compare to asset classes that might not earn you a yield, such as precious metals? Although, mind you, I, I have, I brought here, I should showcase that to you as well, is that I do have a lot of physical precious metals, uh, just in case anyone was curious, as I was discussing about last time. But I am strictly being pragmatic about this and thinking about where I can generate the largest capital gain because of the fact that what, what has happened in our economy is that clearly we are now shifting beyond the realm of the real economy, which could be understood as the physical economy, through this very numeric economy of the mind. And what do I mean by that? I mean, that's why stock markets are at all-time highs while the average Joe is suffering. This is strictly all part of what I refer to as the technocrats, which are basically savvy users of technology to implement technological advanced features to capital markets, to various different processes in the economy to basically enrich the people that need to be enriched. So again, as I told you, I'm, I'm, I have a ton of silver. 
hold that in storage. I like it, but I'm a pragmatist to understand that tomorrow I might need to buy renewables if Biden wins and to think about the fact that despite the CapEx cuts, despite the layoffs, that maybe even oil could be interesting. And I think that it's key for us to understand that direction of the US dollar. I'm also long US dollar. Um, I'm also long British pound, again, a previous reserve currency to go through the next 12 months understanding that gold is something that I want to have, but I wouldn't go all in uh, by no means. It's done nothing to demonstrate to me why I need to go all in on that. It's, it's a simple idea, right? Stimulus, buy gold, but it's not going to give you the biggest bang for your buck. And that's what you need now because the economy, the business environment, commodities are becoming that much harder. So I'm Peter Pham. Um, you can reach me on some of the websites that I've indicated there. Uh, had a really good year in terms of identifying investment opportunities. I like content. I think I mentioned that on the panel as well because we're using content even though we're online and I like the yield that it provides for me. So please be careful in these very unique times and I hope that everyone can find the pockets of light that we all badly need. Thank you very much.